0: When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphiopolis and uh, Apollonia, that's it, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. And I'll stop there. So we see this is a place where God has called him to. He goes there and what does he do immediately? What we know from Paul is he always goes to the synagogues. That's always the place that he starts. He starts in his natural networks, the place where people would most likely have heard of him, most likely have at least heard God the scriptures, they would be looking into the Old Testament. So he comes and he starts, at that point, he starts in the synagogues and he starts in the scriptures. He starts in the Old Testament, starts to talk about the Messiah and then starts to talk about Jesus. That's what he does. And it says that some of the Jews are persuaded. So that's great. He, he has some success. Some of the Jews are persuaded and join Paul and Silas. But it also says a large number of God-fearing Greeks were also persuaded and quite a few prominent women. So that sounds like success, doesn't it? Yes? Sounds like success, he's he's done a good job, he's gone to the place that God sent him, and it's like, yes, he gets a breakthrough, yes, he gets some success, yes, some people believe. But how many of us know that with success often comes other things? (laughs) Anybody ever experienced that? With success, when things are going well, It's like somebody somewhere has something to say. And we see here that some of the other Jews, they didn't have a problem with his teaching. They didn't say anything about his theology, but their problem was they was jealous. It wasn't his theology, but it was his popularity that was the issue. And so they think, right, what can we do? They go and they round up some characters and they get a mob and they start a riot. Oh, not the kind of success that he was thinking of. (laughs) So we see that something that is positive, something that starts well, actually causes quite a stir and there is a riot. And it's because of that, out of that, that actually he ends up moving on to the next place. Probably not the exit that he was hoping to have. Probably not the outcome that he was thinking of. But just because God sends you somewhere doesn't mean that it's going to be smooth sailing. Do you know that? God sends us and God calls us, but sometimes it's not straightforward. Sometimes it's not as, as comfortable as we would like it to be. And that's what happens here. They, they start to accuse him. They say, you know, these men who have turned the world upside down, they've come here to do the same. And they start to make accusations at, at him. They start to drag out the people who are hospitable to him. So it's really quite an uncomfortable situation. It's probably quite scary, if you're being honest. I don't know about you, but I've never been in a riot. But as we read it, we can just read it and just skip over it. But it was probably quite difficult quite frightening quite uncertain very unnerving and it was out of that that actually he ends up moving on and he goes to a place called Berea and sometimes in life it takes turmoil and even sometimes trauma of our circumstances to move us into the next place it's not that we want turmoil and it's not that we want trauma no way But sometimes the circumstances of life throw things up to us. And as we move into a next place, we can find the purposes of God. Amen? So that's what happens here. And it says in verse 10, As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So here in the nighttime, he has to slip out. He ends up in Berea. And what does he do? He does the same thing that he does when he goes to Thessalonica. He goes to the natural network. He goes to the synagogue and he speaks from the scriptures. He speaks from the Old Testament. He shares with them about the Messiah. He shares how the Messiah is going to have to suffer. And then he says, and the Messiah is Jesus Christ. He speaks that message. He shares the message of Jesus. He shares the message that Jesus rose again. And it's says here, he had great success because many believed. And it says they were of noble character. They were eager to look into the scriptures. They were eager to see if what he was saying was true. So again, great success. He, 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 he has believers here. But how many of us know that with success comes other things? And the Jews from Thessalonica had heard about his success here. And guess what? Some more people come along, and again, they start a riot again, and he has to move on. It's that turmoil again that actually moves him on to the next place. But this time, he has to go alone This time he's escorted, but he leaves behind Timothy and Silas with instructions, you know, come to me as soon as you can. So here out of this turmoil, he ends up in a place called Athens and he's alone and he's just waiting for Timothy and Silas. Let's see what happens as he waits. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he's here in this city. He's here and he's just waiting. He's got time on his hands and what does he do? He takes a walk around. He has a look. And the more he walks around, the more he's discouraged The more he walks around, he sees all of these idols, he sees all these shrines, he sees all of these temples, and it says that he's greatly distressed. In in other versions, it talks about he's provoked in his spirit, he's really disturbed and he's upset, he's not having a good time, this is not a tourist trip where he's there with his iPhone just taking pictures, oh, this is interesting, this is nice. No, it's not that kind of visit, it's not that kind of emotion that he feels, he's deeply distressed he's troubled he's like what is this place everywhere he goes everywhere he turns he sees all these idols he sees not just the idols but he sees how people are relating to them he sees how people are worshiping how people are bowing down how people are superstitious how people are putting their trust and he's really troubled because he knows this is so far away from God's plan This is so far away from what God intended and he's deeply distressed and he's deeply bothered. He's convicted and he's stirred in his spirit. And I'm always interested, what do we do with our convictions? What do we do when we're really stirred up? What do we do when we're really passionate, when we really have this desire that this is not how God wants it to be? What do we do with that? I mean, we know Paul. We know Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. We know Paul is not afraid of confrontation. We know Paul has been whipped. He's been stripped. He's been in prison. So he's suffered for the gospel before. So immediately I think, right, let's see how he deals with this. Let's see how he deals with all this idolatry. Come on, this is Paul, full of fire, full of passion. What does he do? Tells us, verse 17, So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. What do you mean he reasoned? I'm like, reasoned? This would be a great opportunity for him to get up there and start preaching. He's troubled, he's bothered, he's convicted. This would have been an amazing opportunity for him to get up and give them what for. This would have been a great opportunity for him to share from his heart, for him to share from his emotion, for him to challenge them. Surely, that's what we think Paul would have done. But that's not what he says he does. He goes to the synagogue. He does as he has done before, but actually, he doesn't start in the same place. In the other places, he started in the Old Testament. In the other places, he started with the Messiah. But he recognizes, I've got the same message, but actually I'm speaking to a different people. I've got the same message, but in all of this, I've got to try and find a way to communicate in a language that they would communicate. I've got to hold on to my convictions. I've got to hold on to what I know is true. But I've got to try and communicate it in a way that people understand. So actually here, Paul is being really strategic. He starts off in the synagogue, yes. And it says that there are a number of um, both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, which makes me realize that maybe he wasn't the only one that, he was, that was troubled. Maybe he wasn't the only one that had that conviction. And it's, it's often the case when we feel stirred up, when we feel zealous about something and we see things that are wrong, we, we can often think, oh, is it just me? Am I the only one that sees this, Lord? But actually, here, here we see there would have been others that had similar convictions, what's important is, what do we do with our convictions? He didn't just say, oh, well, that's just how they are here and just slip on in. No, he knew the message that he had was important. He knew the message that he had was powerful, but he had to find a way to communicate it. And I can imagine as he walked, I can imagine as he looked around, I can imagine as he was troubled, he was thinking, Lord, what am I going to do here? Lord, how am I going to say this? Lord, where do I even start? Has anybody ever had those thoughts? Anybody ever looked around in your circumstances, maybe in your workplace, maybe in your family, maybe in your community, and thought, oh, crumbs, Lord, (laughs) they're lost without you. But how, how do I even make a difference? I'm sure that, that Paul was, had those thoughts and had those conversations with God as he walked around, as he looked and he saw. And we know that he looked and he saw, and he looked very carefully, and it tells us later on, that he found an inscription that said, to the unknown God. So in the midst of all this idolatry, in the midst of all of this, he found and saw something that was maybe a window, maybe just an opportunity, maybe something that I can use to have a conversation with people about. He saw that as he walked around. He found a connecting point. But what's interesting is he doesn't use the connecting point straight away. And that's a strategic thing that we see. He could have just stood by this inscription that says to the unknown God. He could have just set up a little platform there. And anytime anyone came to the unknown, he could have said, do you want me to tell you? Let, let me tell you about the unknown God. Let me. He could have done that, but he didn't. He saw, he observed, he looked, he thought, he prayed, and he held on to what he believed would have been a key into people's hearts to open them up to the truth. A lot of the time when we're in situations and we're in circumstances, we have to keep our eyes wide open. We have to keep our hearts wide open, our ears wide open. As we're saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? As we're saying, Lord, what do you want me to say? And when he gives us something, the next question should be, okay, Lord, when do I share this and how do I share it? Because just because God gives you something doesn't mean it's for today, doesn't mean it's for right now. But if he gives it you, he will show you how to use it. Amen. So he's here, he's found this connecting point, he's found this inscription to the unknown God. And he just does what he normally does. He goes to the synagogue, but he actually edges out a little bit and he goes now into the marketplace as well. And he begins to speak. He begins to share the message of of the resurrection. And that's one thing that we see from Paul. He, his message is consistent. The method of how he communicates it might change, but the message is consistent. He preaches about Jesus Christ, the good news, and he preaches about his resurrection because that is what is going to make a difference in this world. And he does that and he goes to the marketplace. I'm quite encouraged that He's able to compose himself, to be honest. I'm not sure if I would have been able to compose myself in the way that he did. But he has a conviction, but he composes himself so that he can communicate in the right way at the right time. So he shares about the resurrection. Verse 18 A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? So even in a hard space, even when he was convicted, even when he was troubled, even when it would have been so uncomfortable to talk about Jesus and the resurrection, it was in that place that he still communicated. And we see that there was some resistance to what he had to share. Remember when God calls you to something, it's not always going to be comfortable. They said, who is this babbler? So it's not that they were complimentary. It's not that they were saying, oh, this is nice. Come on, there's more people that need to hear no. He knew from their response, from their mockery, that actually they could potentially be quite hostile to me. Does he change his message because of that? No. It's the message of Jesus and the resurrection that gets him invited into a wider space. Because he dares to share, it opens up a wider opportunity. And he gets invited to the Areopagus, which is a place where the influencers gather. And what's interesting for me is it's not that he was praying, saying, Lord, please let me get in there. Please get me into that meeting. No, he wasn't trying to get there. But because he shared the message of Jesus Christ where he was, it opened up a door for him to speak to a wider audience, It's not that he compromised. It's not that he went silent. It's not that he backed away. It's that he did what he knew how to do. He shared the message that he knew was life changing, even in a circumstance that was uncomfortable. And that opened a wider door. And he took that opportunity. He was ready. How ready are we when we get those invitations? And probably we think, oh no crumbs, I'm not ready. I don't know what to say. But by the leading of the Holy Spirit, if God opens a door for you, then that means there's people waiting for you. That means that the message that you carry can make a difference, even if it feels uncomfortable. So he gets this invite And this is his opportunity, you think, right now. Maybe now is the chance in front of everybody. He gets the opportunity. Maybe now is when he's going to really give it to them. Now is when he's going to get up there and smash the idols and tell them that they're doing wrong. Surely. But that's not what we see at all. (laughs) And it's like, Paul, is this you? (laughs) Paul. We know what you've done before. We know what you said before. Paul, what's going on? Something really important is going on. What's going on is God is using him to speak strategically to the influencers of influencers. Because he's in a different space, the way he communicates has to be different. If he'd have just started where he started in the synagogues, if he'd have just started in the Old Testament, they'd have had more things to say than babbler. They'd have had more things to ridicule him about. But he came with the gospel, but it was just presented and packaged in a different way. Let's see what he does. Let's see what he says. Let's see how he deals with these idols. Verse 22. He says, then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Oh, he starts at a different place. And the place where he starts is with the people. He starts where they are. He says, people of Athens, I see that you are very religious. He doesn't just jump in and attack the idols. He doesn't get militant, although we know Paul can be very militant. His aim is to try and win people. His aim is to try and connect. His aim is to try and share a message that they have never heard before. So he has to be very careful about how he does it. And he starts with them. He says, I see that you're very religious. Another translation would say, I see that you're very superstitious. So in that sense, he's saying to them, I see that you have a belief system. I see that you have a trust. I see that you're not a stranger to worship. I see that you want to know. You are aware of God, the gods, and you're even aware of that there's a God that you don't know. I've seen it. Let me talk to you about that God. And it's so important for us to learn from Paul here. How do we communicate the gospel? How do we share to a dying world? How do we share with people who don't know? They're expecting us to jump in. They're expecting us to attack the things that that we don't believe in. But Paul, because he wants to make a difference, because he recognizes he's got a wide opportunity that maybe nobody else has ever had, he uses that opportunity wisely. And he draws on the things that are within them. He draws on that which is in their hearts. He says, I I can see what you're trying to do. I can see that you're reaching out. I can see that you have a faith. Let me tell you about the God that you don't know about. It's a really strategic way to speak in this very influential space. He goes on, verse 24. He says, The God who made everything, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. That was verses 24 and 25. So he starts with he's the God of creation. He starts with creation. He starts with worship. He's sharing the gospel message, but actually, he's crafted it into a way that they can understand. He's using a language that they can grasp. Verse 26 From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He touches on Adam. He touches on that we've all come from one man. He speaks a language that they understand, but he's given a message that maybe they haven't heard before. He he, he responds to their intuitive nature. He says, look, I know that you're reaching out. I know that you're grasping. God has made it that way. He's made it that we as humans are longing for him. So as you reach out, guess what? He wants to be found by you. That's how he's communicating to them. He's communicating from where they are at, not where he is at. His starting point is them not his message, but he has a way to bring the message to them. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. He's saying, look, if God is like us, <laughs> he can't be silver and gold. He's appealing to their, their, their intellect. He's appealing to their, using their poets, using things that they already know to communicate. Look, you believe this stuff. Well, in the light of that, surely, come on. He communicates the gospel, but he communicates it in a way that they can understand. He says, in him, we live and move and have our being. That's what your poet says. So he draws on the things of the day. He draws on the things that they would know. He draws on the things that they would be reading or hearing, but he uses it to communicate the message of the gospel. And then in verse 30, it says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So as part of his message, he still includes repentance. Because that's an important part of the message. He's saying, look, there was a time when we didn't know. There was a time when, okay, you would have had to, you know, make this inscription to the unknown God. Because he was unknown. But the God who is unknown wants to be known. And he's done that so that we can reach out to him and find him. But the way that we do that is through repentance, He doesn't cut that bit out. He shares it with them anyway because it's necessary, because it's important. Verse 31, he says, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And that's where he brings in Jesus. He doesn't actually use the word Jesus. He doesn't use his name. But he, again, comes back to the resurrection. There is a time when God is going to set everything right. There is a day when judgment is going to come. And it's going to be through this man who's been raised from the dead. So he points to Jesus and he talks about the resurrection. He talks about, actually, there is a life beyond this. And what we worship now is important to that. Who we worship now is important to that. And let me introduce you to him. And it was when he spoke about the resurrection, that's when the reaction came. They were, he was fine up to that point. <laughs> They're <were> all listening. <laughs> I thought, oh, this is interesting. But as soon as he touched the resurrection, that's when the response came. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others says, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So here we see he has an opportunity to speak. He has the most strategic opportunity he's probably ever had. And he uses it wisely and he uses it carefully, but he doesn't compromise. He speaks to them in a language that they understand. He speaks about the God of creation. He speaks about worship. He speaks about the fall. He speaks about repentance. He speaks about resurrection. It's almost like in Corinthians where he talks about, we must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what he's doing right here. He's preaching the gospel, but he's preaching and speaking it in a way that he's dealing with all the thoughts, all the ideologies, all the things that would hinder people from coming to him, all the things that are floating out there that are trying to drift people away from Jesus. He uses those thoughts to bring people to the truth. He's strategic. And when he speaks about the resurrection, he gets a divided response, which he's had in the past before. But it doesn't matter what the response is. What matters is, is that the message has gone out. And what, what we see here is, some mocked, some believed, and some wanted to know more. So even though he leaves that place, He leaves with a clear message and he actually leaves a seed of the gospel. There are now believers amongst the thinkers and that's a powerful thing. So even though he's had an uncomfortable journey, even though there's been turmoil that has moved him on, even though there's been riots, even though there's been ridicule, the power of the gospel has still gone forth and will do what it can do, will do what needs to be done, regardless of whether people liked Paul or not, regardless of whether he was comfortable or not, the powerful message of Jesus Christ and his resurrection was shared and a seed was left. And that's the most important thing from this. So at this point, I'm going to give you an opportunity to just talk a little What I've shared there, I'm going to encourage you to just get into some small groups, maybe groups of four or five, and I'm going to ask you. I know this is this is something that people either love or hate, all right? But just be around people, and somebody will talk, even if it's not you. (laughs) But I want you to think about because we can look at that and we think, oh, that's great, you know, Paul, you know, all these idols. But when we look in our society, we're not seeing all these shrines. We're not seeing all these idols in the way that he did in Athens. But does that mean that people aren't worshipping? Does that mean that there aren't idols? Or is it that they just look differently? So in this sermon, we see Paul walked around and he looked and he saw how people worshipped. I want you to talk amongst yourselves, and I want you to think about as you look around, so whether that's in your community, your workplace, your family, wherever, but as you look around, what do you see that is evidence of people's worship, where people's trust or belief is, whether it's things that you see? It might actually be things that you hear people say that actually Give us an indication of where people's worship or trust or belief is. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Can you do that for a few minutes? You can try. That's all you can do is just try. Brilliant. Okay, a few minutes. Okay. I'm loving the fact that you're talking. I'm just going to add another dimension to your discussion, if that's okay. Um. Another dimension to your discussion is, after you've talked about the things that people worship, I want you to think about, is there anything in particular that really distresses you? We see Paul, he was convicted. He saw things that really made him feel upset. Are there things that really for you, specific things that actually, that's the thing that caused me distress? That's the thing that maybe I think God would want me to play a part in some way in addressing so just add that to your conversation maybe just a couple of minutes and then we'll hear some of the things that you've been sharing if that's okay thank you I'm really impressed at the the amount of talking that's happening it could have gone another way (laughs) okay if we can try and round it up a little bit it'd just be great to hear some of the things that people have been sharing and seeing, sensing, convicted about. So just for a couple of minutes then, before the um, worship team come back up, let's hear what you've been sharing with one another. So anybody want to share? I asked the question, what are the things that we see or hear that let us know about people's worship in our world? And what are the things that maybe we're convicted about personally? Anybody? The worship of designer labels and the way in which people are prepared to put themselves into debt. Um, And we all have things with badges on and, and what have you. But it's the way in which with so many people that becomes what's important in life. So perhaps the Temple of Worship is the Trafford Centre. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I was there last night. <laughs> Anybody else want to share something? Sorry. Okay. I'll just a quick Well, Yeah, um, leisure and pleasure. It seems to be a focus for so many people. Mm-hmm. Leisure and pleasure. A focus for many people. Okay, thank you. Um, Social media, because like nowadays on Instagram, for example, they see that you've got loads of of followers or likes, and um, they see, oh, she's got a perfect face. So girls will literally spend thousands of money on surgery and makeup just to look perfect. Okay, thank you. So social media, which presents a certain image that people go after, also this desire for lots and lots of followers. Thank you. Anybody else? afraid i was thinking about football uh because um people they do worship their team their individual team and the, they they put their players on a pedestal don't they uh so and they spend thousands of pounds going to like they travel to the world cup didn't they and they travel to other you know so i just you know because uh, they have They use use stadiums for Christians and conferences, and I I sometimes look at the thing and think, wow, wouldn't it be great if they were actually uh, worshipping the Saviour and not Eric Cantona or Rooney or whoever it was that was there. Thank you. Thank you very much. So favourite teams and worshipping favourite players and what people spend their money and their time on. Anything can be an idol, really. It's when something takes the place of God, isn't it? Anybody... Anything else that they would like to share, whether things that they've noticed about worship or personal things that you think, actually, this bothers me. And I think God is calling me to do something about it. Uh, The way um, that you're not allowed to question scientists these days and they act like they're priests that are speaking absolute truth. Okay, science. And that's a scientist speaking. (laughs) Thank you. Anybody else? Anything that they want to contribute or add? Yeah, you also got um, uh, yeah pop idols, um, yeah, or anything to do with money or music or anything like that. Yeah, people go for that a lot. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about lifestyles as well. That we can you know, make our lifestyle our God, almost. You know, so that God's pushed out. We want to do. We want to live a particular way, instead of the way God wants us to live. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Okay, if you wanna just come back, worship team, that'd be great. So we can see, although in the Scripture we can see that looks like that's something that happened over there. That's something that was idols or an issue in Athens, actually, if we look around, we can see people are worshipping just in different ways. And really, it's the case of, as Paul looked around and was deeply distressed and realised he had a message that could help, he had a message that would challenge, but that would help people to actually worship the true and living God, we too then have a responsibility as we look around and say, okay, What's my responsibility? How do I share the message of God's love, of God's resurrection power, and of his invitation into a relationship with him? We all have that as something that we need to reflect upon and something that we need to respond to. And maybe we can learn the lessons from Paul, not to just go smashing idols, but actually look for the connecting point that God has given And in his time, he will give us the opportunity to communicate in a way that will make a difference, that will bring people to faith, will make people to ask more questions, but also will cause some people to say, I'm not interested.